Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. That we have your word and you tell us who you are. And we pray that you will help us to learn and to see that we may honour you for who you are. Please help us as we look at this important topic, Father. For our good and your glory we pray. Amen. Now we have started a series of looking at various topics And so this is uh, the doctrine of the Trinity that we're looking at. Now don't be put off by the word doctrine. Uh, The word doctrine simply means uh, what the whole Bible has to say about one topic. And so today's topic on the Trinity is crucially important. It is one of the most important topics in the Bible. Because it has to do with God. And it is answering the question, who is God? Now, there is no more important question than this one, because there is no one and nothing more important than God. And the primary way that God has introduced himself to us is as the Trinity. Now, you can see in your handout that I've given you a definition of what the Trinity is. And the definition is, uh, God eternally exists as three persons, uh, which means that there was never a time when uh, there was only the Father or only the Son. At all times, for eternity, there was always Father, Son and Spirit. Okay, And each person is fully God. And there is one God. It is not three gods, it is one God. Now, that's taken from uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology. Now, from your faces, I can see that not everyone is super excited about looking at this topic. Now, how many of you woke up this morning and said, Ah, today we're going to be learning about the Trinity. Yes! And you made sure you got here early and on time. Okay, so I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to give you a choice. Either... We can continue with today's assigned topic, you know, understanding the Trinity. Or we can have a sermon. A sermon on 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Okay, so, you know, Trinity or 1 John 3, verse 1. Which one would you prefer? Okay, 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 great, great, great. Although, although, I think that most people, if they are honest, would prefer option two. You know, hearing about God's love for us. Because that's, that's warm, that's exciting, that's something we can relate to. But when you hear the Trinity, you know, it sounds a bit cold, academic. You know, what... what what relevance can it have for our lives? Okay, so I'm glad you have made a choice, you know, the more vocal ones. But anyway, you don't really have a choice because I only prepared one sermon. But more importantly, it is only because God is Trinity that 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 is true. If God were not a Trinity, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 would not be true. Now, why is that? Why not? 
Because imagine instead that God is a single person God. Okay? Now, that's not difficult because most people imagine him to be a single person God anyway. Now, this single person God, before he created anything or anyone, now, essentially, he was all alone. And so, for eternity, this single person God had nothing and nobody to love. Now, such a God would fundamentally be inward-looking. He would not be outwardly loving. And so, if such a God were to declare his love for me, and uh, you know, say, I want to make you my child, well, you and I, we should be very, very sceptical. Because this God is doing something that is not part of his nature. Now, how long would he be able to keep it up? My friends, thankfully, we do not have such a God. For the Bible tells us that the true and living God, the one true God who made us and everything else, He is a trinity. One God, three persons. For all eternity, He has always existed as Father, Son, Spirit. Now this is the truth about God. That He is not essentially lonely. But for all eternity, has always been in a loving relationship with each other. Love is part of the nature of God. In fact, the Bible tells us, God is love. Now, you could never say that of a single person God. Only of a God who is Trinity could you say that such a God is love. So aren't you glad you don't have to make a choice because we're getting both, okay? God is love because God is Trinity. So, refer to your outline in the bulletin. Because we are looking at the Trinity, of course, we will have three points. And uh, the handout here will help you with the verses that I'll be referring to. So, the first point. Where does the Trinity appear in the Bible? And the answer is, nowhere. Nowhere. Okay? You search from beginning to end, you will not find the word Trinity. But... Uh, although the word doesn't appear, the concept, the idea, the truth of it appears again and again and again. Right? One God, three persons. The Bible clearly teaches that. So, we'll look at uh, it in turn. Under one God, the Bible clearly teaches that there is one God. So, Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, you can see in your outline, the handout. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. That's the Old Testament. And the New Testament as well affirms this. 1 Timothy 2.5 simply says, For there is one God. Now, the Bible also clearly teaches that this one God is three persons. Father, Son, Spirit. And each person is fully God. Now, this is the, the mistake that some well-meaning illustrations make. Right? Have you heard of the, the illustration of the egg? You know, which tries to explain the Trinity. You know, just as there's one God, you have one egg, and this one egg is made out of three parts. You've got a shell, you've got a yolk, you've got an egg white. Now, that is not the Trinity. Right? Because the egg alone, uh, the, 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 shell, the shell alone, doesn't make up the full egg. The yolk alone doesn't make up the full 
A. Right, you got three parts, one A. Now, the Trinity is not like that. Father is fully God. Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. So, what are the Bible references that tell us that? Uh, under the Father is God, we have 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, which tells us, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. So that's clear, and uh, Christians throughout church history, there's never been any doubt uh, about this point. There, there are no heresies which uh, doubt this, that the Father is God. The next point, the Son is God. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word here is a title referring to the Son. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, very clear. Uh, the Son is God. Now, when I was in uh, theological college, in my first year in Perth, there was a Jehovah's Witness that came to the door. And uh, so, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that the Son, that Jesus, is not God. Only the Father is God. The, the Son and the Spirit, they are not God. So, in my conversation with him, I wanted to, you know, try and show him from the Bible that, no, no, the Bible shows us Jesus is God. So, I borrowed his Bible and I, I fit to John chapter 1, verse 1. And to my horror... I read in his Bible that it says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. See, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have changed the Bible, uh, some parts of it anyway, in order to support uh, their belief that the Son is not God. Now, because I was only in my first year in theological college, I was stumped. I was so shocked that the Bible had been changed that I didn't know what else to say to him. But in case that happens to you, I've given you two more references. Okay? You can see in the handout which they have not changed. Okay? And so in John chapter 8, verse 58, uh, Jesus is having a debate uh, with the Jews and he says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now you refer back to Exodus chapter 3. I am is the name that God has given to Moses introducing himself. So Jesus here is clearly, undeniably, ascribing deity to himself. I am, he says. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it says, And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So that's what the Bible clearly teaches. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Bible also clearly teaches that the Spirit is God. Now before we look at the Bible passages, I want you to consider this statement that I'm going to say and uh, think whether it's right or wrong. Okay? And the statement is, The Spirit searches all things. It even knows the deep things of God. Okay, Correct or not? Is it right or wrong? Correct, huh? Okay, now, in gist, it is correct, but there is one mistake which I have uh, purposely introduced into that statement. Anyone spotted the mistake? Yes, Sasha. I said it rather than he. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It is, he is a person. 
He is not some force or some power that's impersonal. No, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is a person. He can be grieved. He can be insulted. He can be resisted. He, he can be related to. The whole, don't make the mistake of calling the Holy Spirit it or thinking of it as just some force or power. No, He is a person. And so, uh, where are the passages that show us that the Holy Spirit is God? Uh, you have there Acts chapter 5, verse 3 to 4. Uh, Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he says later, You have not lied to human beings, but to God. See, so the Holy Spirit is equated uh, with God. Now, in addition to that verse, throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit has qualities, uh, characteristics which only God has. So, for example, Hebrews 9 verse 14. Okay, that's not in your handout. But uh, Hebrews 9 refers to the, the Holy Spirit as the eternal Spirit. Now, that's a quality that only God has. And uh, throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit also does things which only God does. And in John chapter 3 and Titus chapter 3, uh, it is the giving of life, which only God can do. So the Holy Spirit has qualities, the Holy Spirit does things which only God has and which only God can do. The conclusion is very clear. The Holy Spirit, the Bible is telling us, is fully God. Now, this is just a small sample. A okay? small sample of the many references in the Bible. Because without doubt, the Bible clearly teaches there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now, in addition to these points, it is also clearly seen that each person in the Trinity is different in role and position in relation to each other. So the, the last point in the handout says that each person is distinct. You see, it is the Father who commands. It is a Father who has supreme authority. And it is the Son and the Spirit who obey. It is the Father who sends the Son, who sends the Spirit. Right? Nowhere in the Bible do you have the Son sending the Father. Right? It is always the Son who says, I obey my Father. And it is the Son who is sent by the Father. And... Uh, I've given you John chapter 5, verse 21 to 23. And as we read that, look at uh, how this position of the Father being in authority and the Son uh, receiving authority and the Son submitting to the Father is so clearly seen. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent Him. Now the point I'm trying to make is that each person is distinct and there are roles where the Father is in the position of authority and the Son and the Spirit submit uh, to the Father. So while each person is fully God, they play different roles and occupy different positions 
in the Trinity. So that's uh, where the Bible teaches about the Trinity. Now, the second point, how to make sense. Okay, how do we make sense of what the Bible says about the Trinity? Now, I want to ask you to imagine that you are a new Christian. Okay? For all your life, you've been a Buddhist or you've been a free thinker, you know, whatever. And then you have just become a Christian. And you get locked up in a room. Now, don't be scared. It's a very comfortable room. There's uh, aircon and there's food and there's water. And all you're given is a Bible. Okay? You're given a Bible with all these references, okay? without any headings. Okay? Uh, hundreds and hundreds of references like this. Okay? And you are asked to make sense of all these references, what the Bible clearly teaches. And then you see, yeah, yeah, the Bible clearly teaches there's one God. And then, hey, yeah, this reference uh, talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then, and very clearly, it talks about these three persons being God. But it's not three gods, it's, it, it is one God. The Bible clearly teaches. See, if you're just a, a young Christian, and all you have in the room is a Bible, no podcast, no internet connection, no theological textbook. All you have is the Bible. How are you going to make sense of what the Bible says about the Trinity? Now that, in a sense, is what the early church, what the first Christians had to deal with. They had all this information, they had all this evidence and references. How are they going to think about God? One, and then Father, Son, Spirit, all God. You know, how, how do you make sense of it? Well, so what happened is that there were people who came out with proposals, uh, suggestions. And an uh, early Christian by the name of Sabellus, uh, he came out with a suggestion that, yes, okay, the Bible clearly teaches there is only one God. Okay, that's the Father. And this, this one God, the Father, decided to come in the, the mode of his Son. So this God is like Transformer. You know, at first he's the Father, then he transforms into the Son, then he comes in the form or in the mode of the Son. Then after this Son is raised and ascended to heaven, he transforms again and comes to us in the form or in the mode of the Spirit. Okay, so one God, but he appears three different ways. Um, clearly, this is wrong. Okay, and the early Christians recognized that. Yes, yes, there's one God, you know, your proposal fits that, but, but you know, at the baptism of Jesus, don't we see uh, the Father speaking from heaven? Don't we see the, the Son being baptized and then the Spirit coming down on Him? No, we got all three simultaneously, you know, have, you know they're all there at one point. So they rejected uh, Sabellus' proposal. And it is a false teaching, it is a heresy. And it's called uh, modalism because you know God comes in different modes. Uh, it's called modalism. Unfortunately, there are still churches which uh, believe this. And I'm told the United Pentecostal Church is one denomination that holds to uh, a modalistic view of the Trinity. And some Christians also unwittingly uh, commit this error when they give the illustration of the Trinity as water. You know, water. There's the liquid state, there's the solid state, and there's a gaseous state. Now, it is those same molecules, right? That at one time can be liquid, at one time can be solid, at one time can be gas. That's modalism. 
Okay, so don't use the illustration. It is a heresy. It has been condemned already. Okay? So, uh, another Christian, another early Christian, uh, who came out of his locked room, so to speak, proposed another idea. And he was a bishop by the name of Arius. Now, Arius was trying very hard to hold on to the fundamental teaching that God is one. Right? There is one God. And so he argued that Jesus, while he is exalted and worthy of honor and praise, Jesus, nevertheless, is just a creature. Yes, he is higher than humans, but he is one level down from God. He is higher than humans, higher than all the angels, but he is a creature one level down from God. So Arius was denying uh, the godness of the Son. Now, unlike modernism, which the early Christians could see was wrong and rejected, uh, this proposal actually gained quite a large following. Okay, and uh, it's called Arianism, and uh, they couldn't see that it was rubbish. And so a lot of people um, were attracted by this view. And the reason why it was so attractive was because it didn't make the mistake of modernism. You know, that was clearly wrong. And it held very clearly to uh, the notion that there is one God. And it made sense in a way of how Jesus is so such a great creature that, we deserve, that he deserves to be honoured and praised. But nonetheless, Arius said Jesus was just a creature. A great creature, but nevertheless just a creature. Now at this point, God raised up a young Christian leader, and uh, he was only 27 years old at that time. Okay, and his name is Athanasius. And so Athanasius um, once said, because so many, so many people were following this false teaching of Arianism, um, people came to him and said, hey, why are you still fighting this teaching? And then Athanasius said, even if the whole world you know, follows after Arianism, I will be against the whole world. Because Athanasius saw clearly that if you reduce Jesus to just a creature, our salvation will be at stake. And so, he was just a young man, 27 years old, and God used Athanasius to defend the deity of Christ. And so, at one of those big church councils, they, they saw, hey, yeah, Arius is wrong, Athanasius is right. And so, now you, you might wonder, why did it take so long you know, for, for people to come up with? It's just like, you go to a locked room, all you have is the Bible, you come out of it, you know, there'll be some people with better ideas, some people with uh, not so good ideas. But as they, as they clashed, as they d- debated, uh, the false ideas, the wrong ideas, helped clarify what the truth was. And so even though there was false teaching, God used it to help Christians see more clearly, ah, no, 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 there's one God, and each person is fully God. And so, it was people like uh, Tertullian and Augustine who came up with the proposal that we understand the Trinity this way. Okay, you ready? God is one when you consider from the perspective of his nature, his essence. So God is one when it comes to his nature, his divine nature, his divine essence. And God is three when you look at it in terms of persons. Now, what's the difference between essence and persons? Well, essence is 
the ability to do. And so the divine essence has the ability to do divine things. Uh, persons, persons have the ability to relate. So when you look at it in terms of essence, God is one. You look at it in terms of persons, God is three. So one in essence, three in persons. Now, this is not contradictory. Okay? It would only be contradictory if I said God is one in essence and three in essence. No, no, that, that, that's contradictory. Or I said God is one in person and three in person. Now, that's contradictory. But to say he is one in essence, three in persons, is not contradictory. But there will still be people, right? There will still be people. But uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense, eh? Not really logical. Okay, I know, I know. This is, these are the deep things of God. Okay, no, Augustine said, you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. You try and explain it, you lose your mind, okay? <laughs> so what we have clearly is uh, what, we, what God has revealed about the Trinity. And the mistake that we cannot make is to try and constrain God with our human logic. Now, God, because He created time, He created space, you cannot expect God to be constrained by the limitations of time and space. Is that right? Now, God also created human logic. And so we cannot expect God to be constrained by the limitations of our human logic. Okay, so it is not contradictory, but it cannot fully be worked out uh, with our human logic. But God has revealed himself to be one in essence, three in persons. Or as the Italian said in Latin, una substantia, tres persone. One substance, three persons. And we give praise to God for that. Now on to the third point. What difference does the Trinity make? What difference does the Trinity make? Now, you think about it, huh? Think about it. What we are being told here is that for all eternity, what existed, okay, was not gold or silver. For all eternity, what has existed is not a growing collection of electronic gadgets. What has always existed is one God in three persons. And one God in three persons in a relationship of love. In a relationship where there is authority and submission. Now that, that is ultimate reality. That is what has always been and what will always will be. Because the true and living God is Trinity. So what matters most is not getting richer or accumulating more things. It is relationships that matter. Not only that, we are told that you and I, you and I, we are made in the image of God. We have been created with the imprint of this triune God upon ourselves. So to be totally human, to be truly human, to really flourish and live as human, created in the image of a triune God, the way forward is not more money or more things, but as uh, seeing ourselves 
not as isolated individuals, but that we are interconnected, interdependent uh, with each other in relationships, in community. Now, of course, this applies to all areas of our lives, but let's think about what this means for us as a church. Now, I've said this before. Now, what it means for us uh, is that we must not think of church as a spiritual patrol station. You know, when we need a top-up, we just come. And at a a, a patrol station, when you come for a top-up, you don't really have a relationship with other users. You might say hi to the girl at the counter and, you know, good day, uh, have a good day, that sort of thing. But you don't have a relationship. You're not really interconnected. You're not really interdependent with the other people who use the patrol station. Now, church is not like that. Don't think of church this way. You see, with an individualistic mentality, with the sort of attitude that says, I can do things myself. I don't need anyone to help me. Now, that's basically a mindset. That's an attitude that rejects God's created design. When we don't see as important, when we don't see as priority that we need to come and be in a relationship where there's accountability, where there's dependence, where we're helping each other, where we are in in relationship with each other, we are rejecting God's created design. In other words, don't just come to BTPC. Be a part of BTPC. Now, for that, for some of you, that means you need to get into a right relationship with this God first. And God has offered it in the giving of His Son, asking uh, us to trust Him so that we who have been estranged from Him, rejected, uh, because we rejected Him, we are alienated from Him, we can now be in a right relationship with this triune God. But for those of us who have trusted Christ, one practical way we can ask is, are you in a small group? Are you in a small group where it is a place where we can build relationships, where we can both give and receive from one another as we seek to grow in Christ? And if you are in a small group already, Are you and your small group simply in autopilot mode? Simply in maintenance mode? Doing the bare minimum? Or is there, in prayerful dependence on God, a deliberate intentionality, seeking to form real relationships of love and accountability with each other? So because our God is a triune God, it is relationships that matter. Now the next point that I want to briefly mention is that since God has created us in His image, it means that inherent in our relationships, there will not only be mutual love, there will also be structures of authority and submission. This is the way God has built these things into our relationships. And we must say, it is both authority and submission, which is good. Because within the Trinity, 
there is both authority and submission for all eternity and forever there will be. So God has made us in this way. That in the relationship of a marriage, it is husbands who have authority and it is a wife's role to submit. In the family, it is parents who have authority and it is children who must submit. And in our church family, it is leaders who are given authority and members who are to submit. Now, in the Trinity, the Father exercises perfect authority. In our homes, in our churches, there is no perfect human authority. There is no perfect husband, there is no perfect church leader. But you can search all the Bible, you will not find God saying anywhere, only if the authority is perfect, then submit. Nowhere. Rather, those who are in authority will be held accountable for the way they have exercised their authority or the ways they have neglected their authority. And those of us who are called to submit will be held accountable for whether we have given right and joyful submission. Now, there is so much we could say on this point. But I just want you to think about it this way. If the eternal Son did not consider it beneath Himself to submit lovingly and joyfully to a Father, how could we uh, see that it demeans us to give submission to authority that is right? Because authority does not make one superior, nor submission make one inferior. Because we have both authority and submission in the Trinity and they are each person fully and equally God. Now the last point. Oh, even the last point got three. Yeah? Okay, so because it's really Trinity. Now the last point. The truth of the Trinity shapes the salvation that we have been given. The truth of the Trinity shapes the salvation we have been given. This was read for us in the scripture reading and I have included it as the footer right below, John 17, verse 23. This is Jesus, the Son, praying to the Father in the upper room. Okay? And part of his prayer, he's, he's, he's speaking to the Father and he says to the Father, Father, you, you send me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you see that? Jesus the Son speaking to the Father and saying, You have sent me and you have loved them. Who is the them? It's you and me. You and I, we have been loved by the Father even as the Father loves the Son. The salvation that we have been given is not simply, okay, your sins are forgiven. Okay, okay, you can come and be part of my kingdom. No, God's purpose in saving us is so that we can be loved. Loved by the Father in the same way the Father has loved the Son. We who have rejected God, in Christ we have been redeemed, we have been brought back, not merely to be servants, not merely to be citizens in His kingdom, but as children. Brought back in the Son, to enjoy 
the abounding love the Son has always experienced. And the Father has sent the Spirit into our hearts to give us the certainty and the confidence to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, you just cannot get this with a single person God. Only with a God who has eternally existed in love as Father, Son and Spirit. Only a trinity could save in this way. To be loved even as the Son is loved. Friends, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Praise be to God. Amen.